I was doing a Frankenstein bit and I came out of the makeup room in my full Frankenstein head, just as he was coming off from his interview. And so I was literally in the airlock. It was just me, Frank Smiley, our producer and uh, <laughs> Neil Young. And I just, I, he was standing right there. So I just said, I just wanted to say thank you. You know, again, like your music has meant a lot to me. And he goes, oh, uh, Frankenstein bit was funny, man. <laughs> Would you look at that? Billy went and got himself a theme music. Thank you so much to Ruben Alexander for that. It is so much appreciated. And hello, everybody, and welcome to Last First Day, the podcast where I, Billy Gleason, lead guests from all over the entertainment industry back through one more perfect day of school. Why? Well, their schools happen to have reached out to me and told me that they were technically one day short of graduating. I know, rubbish. However, due to my magical powers in the space of about 45 minutes to an hour each week, I can lead them back through the hallways of the last first day academy, get them all graduated, and it's like nothing ever happened and everything is fine again. Now, if you've joined us before, you know exactly how the format goes, but if not, I highly encourage you to go back and check out previous episodes. Last week, I had the winner of the Boston Comedy Festival, Wilfred Padua, come and join me. Before that, we've had writer and comedian Philip Jeremick, host of the Premier League on NBC, Rebecca Lowe, Formula One presenter and Drive to Survive personality, Will Buxton, Catalyst Wrestling, Stephen DeNano, and there's going to be so many more, so subscribe, like, share, and get the word out there, because you won't want to miss a single one of these, and you especially won't want to miss today's episode. I have managed to dupe a comedy legend into joining me this week and I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. He comes from the world of Second City and he started out in this industry alongside the likes of Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Bob Odenkirk, Chris Farley, Tim Meadows, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. He has so many stories that this episode probably could have been about 12 hours, but I had to cut it down and here we have a fantastic episode for you. So please enjoy the last first day of Brian Stack. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Last First Day podcast. My guest today is an actor and writer you know from over 25 years of work in the late night comedy sphere, initially with Conan O'Brien and currently with The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He is also a master of popping up on all your favorite television shows, including 30 Rock, New Girl, and Parks and Rec. I've been fortunate enough to work with him twice along the way, and I'm very excited to do so again today as we welcome the nicest man in comedy, Brian Stack. How are you, sir? It's such a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Billy. Thanks for asking me to do it. I, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. You're very, very welcome, sir. So thank you so much. I've heard so many great stories from you over the years, Brian. You've got such a wonderful career in comedy to this point with stories that people would be so jealous of. If I can speed back to the beginnings of your comedy career, at what point in your life did you know that sketch comedy was the path that you wanted to pursue? You know, I loved comedy growing up. It never occurred to me that I could do it myself professionally in any way. Partly growing up in the Midwest, showbiz people seemed like they were from another planet, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but I always loved sketch comedy. I loved SCTV and Python, early SNL and uh, Peter Sellers. So I would do the voices for my friends and stuff like that. But it never occurred to me that there was some avenue that I could take that would allow me to do it. But I discovered improv and kind of fell into sketch comedy through doing improv, which is sort of, as you know, writing on your feet. So it yeah. was it was a nice way to 
kind of find your comedic voice. Like in, I first did it in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, when I was going to grad school, and then later in Chicago for several years. So that was sort of my bridge into sketch comedy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually start really writing full sketches until I worked at Second City in Chicago for the last four years that I was there before I worked at Conan. That was sort of where we would develop scenes through improvisation and then hone them into sketches. Mm -hmm. That's where I originally knew Paul Danello and Steven and Tom Purcell and people like that. Yeah, that was sort of where I always loved it. And then I gradually kind of fell into it later on. When you started in sketch comedy, I'm always so curious about that very beginning moment because I feel like I've spoken to people over the years who have said, oh, I got into it because a friend recommended it. Someone said they thought I'd really enjoy it. Did someone pull you into it? Did you just think, oh, I'm just going to try my hand at this? How did that first time jumping into the world of sketch occur? When I was in college at Indiana University as an undergrad, there was a guy on my dorm floor named Mick Napier who had an improv group. And Mick later went on to become a very well-respected director in Chicago and was a director at Second City and directed people like Tina Fey and, and Stephen Colbert. And I just was randomly assigned to his dorm floor, which was just blind luck. And Mick had a group there that got me really interested in comedy. The possibility of doing it started to sink into my head that, oh, people you know can do this. And I didn't have the guts to audition for his group. I used to go see them all the time. But Mick is the one who told me about Improv Olympic, later called I.O. Chicago, and there's an I.O. West in L.A. later on. Thanks to Mick getting me interested in improv and then telling me about I.O., I took a beginner class as soon as I graduated from college. And then when I got up to grad school at for University of Wisconsin, there happened to be this little improv theater there called the Arc Theater. And that was where I first did my actual performing in front of people. So we did some sketch comedy there. We did mostly improv. The late, great Chris Farley was actually in my first group there, even as a complete beginner, which, you know, we all were total beginners. It was very obvious that he was very special even back then. And the first time actually that I ever saw Stephen Colbert and Paul Danello was when I went to see Chris's first touring company show at Second City. Stephen was in the group. Paul was in the group. They were amazing. Probably 23, 24 at the time. It was very obvious that they were all brilliantly talented, even at that very young age. I got a lot of inspiration from people I watched in school and also later when I got into the Chicago scene, there were so many people in the local scene there that were amazing, you know, that would just inspire you and make you want to do the best work you could do. And I'm grateful that I still get to work with some of them. Stephen was always one of my favorite performers and people even back in those early days. He was always nice to the people that were coming up behind him, you know, and I'll never forget that because people like him and Carell and Amy Sedaris and them, they were very nice to us when they didn't have to be. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. Since you mentioned Farley, I wanted to ask, because I've heard so many stories over the years as far as people have seen these SNL sketches, the things like Matt Foley that are now just the stuff of legend. But the people that were at Second City that I've ever spoken to have said, you know what, when he was doing that, at Second City, some of these characters, like I believe Matt Foley was one of them, that it was a Second City mm -hmm. character originally. And people have told me it was 10 times funnier then. Like it was uproariously funny on SNL, but you can't really describe how hilarious it was in the room. Did you feel that way when you were watching it live and in person that you were just part of something special? It really did feel very special. I've never seen anything wipe out an entire room the way Matt Foley did when when I watched it live. And and 
I remember Bob Odenkirk in interviews has said, because Bob Odenkirk developed that scene for Chris and with Chris, as he was in the sketch with him at Second City. Odenkirk said, you know, when his daughter asked him, what's your favorite thing you've done in show business? You know, he'd done all these shows and movies and critically acclaimed things. And he said, without a doubt, doing Matt Foley, motivational speaker, eight times a week with Chris Farley live at Second City. Wow. That is the highest praise. You know, when you think about all the amazing things he's done, that's what he considers a highlight. But it did feel like that. And I remember the night the actual Matt Foley was in the audience. It was Chris's old Marquette friend, Matt Foley, who was a priest, a soft-spoken Catholic <laughs> priest. And Chris used his name for the character and said, I'm keeping this name because he would toss in friends' names if he was doing a character, if he saw him in the audience. He once very kindly did that for me. He was doing a male stripper character <laughs> and he, he spotted me sitting there and he, he said, how you doing, bro? He used my name in this. So he would do that. He was just that kind of generous, sweet guy that he would like if he saw you were there with your friends or family, he would just toss it in. And with Matt Foley, he had just stuck. <laughs> so, And I love that the real Matt Foley is nothing like the character Matt Foley. He was just this sweet, soft-spoken Catholic priest. <laughs> he was amazing to watch. I think that a lot of his SNL stuff comes close to catching how electric he was live in the room. But I do wish more people could have seen him live. For sure. You mentioned Odin Kirk. You said he was in the bit as well. He was in the Matt Foley bit as well as producing it. I don't even know if it was the exact same bit that we got to know so well on SNL. Was Odin Kirk playing more the David Spade kid role? Was it the Phil Hartman dad role? It was the dad role. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Meadows was the son. Gotcha. And Jill Tolley was the daughter that Christine Applegate played in the very first one. Holly Wartell was the mother that Julia Sweeney played. And Odenkirk, his last night at Second City was also Chris's last night. And I was lucky enough to see that. Bob was going back to write at SNL and Chris was going off to do SNL. And it was so exciting. He was one of those guys who were like, oh, it's a no brainer that he's going to be on SNL. You didn't feel like that about most people. Yeah, There were some that you thought were talented enough to be on SNL, of course. But he was one where it just felt like, oh, as soon as they see him, it's a done deal. It always felt like that to everyone in the community. Were Bob and Chris kind of going to SNL as a package deal, or did it just so happen that they both got it the same year in their respective roles? Well, Bob was actually already writing at SNL. He had come up a little bit in the Chicago Impress scene with Robert Smigel. Mm -hmm. I think Robert Smigel may have recommended him and gotten a packet in for him. So Bob was already an accomplished writer, but he came back that summer to do a show at Second City, the only show he ever did. So Bob only did one show at Second City in the main stage, and that sketch was part of that show. Oh, wow. I am very curious because you got to walk those great hallways that so many people have. You mentioned Carell and Colbert and all these people that were so generous to you and so helpful, but was there anyone in the Second City world who informed some of your comedy later in your career, sort of helped you develop your style into what it is today? Not to compare it to rock and roll and make it seem cooler than it is, but I remember Keith Richards saying that if you're a guitar player, everything you've heard comes out in what you play. Mm -hmm. I think I was soaking in so much stuff from so many great people. And that goes for people I watched on TV too. People like Joe Flaherty and the SCTV people. Sometimes like at Conan, I'd be doing a sketch and I'm like, oh my God, I sounded just like Joe Flaherty. <laughs> I could send him a royalty check for that. And I know that that happened with people like, Colbert and Carell and those guys, because I admired them so much. Before I worked at Second City myself, I remember walking up to Steve Carell in a 7-Eleven parking lot. He was standing there with his bicycle, probably just bought a burrito or something. 
And I come out of the dark. He doesn't know me at all at the time. Like I'm just coming out and I go, hi, I just wanted to, and he's like, Oh, I think I startled him. And I was like, I just want to say you're really great. You know? And, uh, and I didn't expect to work at second city myself, but they, they were already role models mm-hmm. for me and so many other people and watching people I came up with who were so smart and funny, you know, including people like my wife, Miriam, you know, who always inspired me and, uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and all these people that I was lucky enough to be around. And, and some of the people I didn't really know at the time, but watched like Jane Lynch and mm-hmm. Mike Myers and people like that were very, very powerful, charismatic performers to watch. And I learned a lot watching them, even if I never worked with them. Mm-hmm. So the community itself, it's almost impossible to say how much influence it had on me, including peers I worked with, like Kevin Dorfoy, later worked with at Conan or John Glazer, or, mm-hmm. you know, all those people or Dave Keckner. Rachel Dratch, people like that, that were friends of ours that were in groups with me that I just, just being around them and Adam McKay, Adam was particularly inspiring because he had so many ideas all the time and he was always writing and always coming up with new ideas. Like it was unusual in the touring company at the time to write new original material Mm -hmm. until you got in the resident company. You didn't usually do original material. You did best of stuff. Adam was the first to kind of start pushing for us. Hey, why don't we try some original stuff? And see if we can shove it in there. And um, so he he was always bursting with creativity, almost like the Jim Henson of the Chicago improv community. It was there were ideas just bursting out of his head, and they still are, obviously. He was particularly prolific in terms of developing ideas. And that was very inspiring mm-hmm. to see someone who is not content to just do the old stuff or the the best of stuff and is always trying to try something new. Well, luckily in your multiple decades in the industry now you've had the opportunity to showcase a lot of original and creative characters that either you've written or have been written for you or has just been this great idea that has come together have any of those characters whether it was at conan colbert movies tv whatever are there any characters of the hundreds if not thousands that you've played over the years that hold a special place in your heart whether it's a role that meant a lot to you or just a role that became a lot bigger than you ever expected it to be oh uh there were a few ed conan that i particularly love doing like the traveling salesman hannigan the traveling salesman who uh i i would write those with um andrew weinberg and michael Komen, and um those were really fun because they were they it was kind of, I've always loved old screwball comedies, like with William Powell, like the thin man and my man Godfrey. So the character was very much influenced by that kind of, that sort of fast way of talking, you know, that old sort of screwball comedy talk. So that was always particularly fun to do. I love doing the interrupter, uh, which I would write with Michael Komen and the ghost crooner, Artie Kendall was one I usually wrote by myself, but that was sort of inspired by old radio that old radio stars that like Bing Crosby that had sung in Rockefeller Center. And sometimes it's characters that I, I might enjoy doing that don't <laughs> don't necessarily go over with the audience. Like we did a character at the Late Show called Shriek and Joe that Jay Katz here originally pitched. We everybody at the show enjoyed it and we found out he made a lot of people turn off their TVs. <laughs> so you don't, you know, they don't always connect with the public the way they connect with the writing staff. It was pretty funny that I actually saw a graph of how many people had switched channels when the (laughs) joke came on. I think you told me once the interrupter character that I loved and I I grew up watching that brought me so much joy. Did you say to me once that that character was burst out of Conan was just getting interrupted in writers meetings and it just sort of became this ongoing bit, did it not? 
Yeah. Well, Conan would joke at rehearsal. Okay. How am I getting interrupted today? Like in the middle of the show, because usually the middle of the show sketches, he would be about to start bringing out the next guest and someone in the audience, some complete lunatic, you know, dressed like a gorilla or something would, would interrupt the show. So he goes, okay, how am I getting interrupted today? And Michael Coleman thought, why don't we try just for new characters when we were trying a new batch of new characters? Um, why don't we have a character that's just sole purpose is to interrupt Conan. That's, there's no other reason for him to exist. I suggested bringing it back and maybe fleshing it out more after we did it initially, just as a one-off joke. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, hey, maybe we could bring that guy back and find out more about what makes him tick and what his life is like. So th then they turned into full sketches after that. But it was Michael Coleman's initial concept, so I'm grateful to him for that. <laughs> That's wonderful. I got the opportunity to work with you originally back at Conan in 2012. And I think part of the joy there that I realized when I was starting out in comedy is no matter how much you prep, you write, and you plan for these wonderful bits, sometimes the most joyous parts that I think Conan also really steered into as well were the things that go wrong, the things that just don't really go to plan when you're trying to get the show together. And I know clips that have been online over the years of late night when was it brian mccann who i think was wearing a robot outfit and the head fell off and yeah. you know the camera yeah. could totally see him inside were there any great moments that you remember from your career that were those great moments that went wrong that you were there for that were just a joy to behold there there were a few like i i loved when things would go wrong and conan really loved it too because i think coming from an improv background we all learn as you know yourself that mistakes are only mistakes if you treat them as mistakes if you treat them as gifts and opportunities the audience loves it like i was coming down the stairs once as god at late night with conan and um i'm clumsy in the best of circumstances but in sandals i'm especially hopeless and i was coming down these stairs and i slip a little bit you know in my sandal as i was saying my son go conan and i'm like coming down the stairs and i slip on camera and conan goes god have you been drinking and um we discovered that at living at rehearsal and going off the rails. That's often the most fun stuff. And not to tattle, but another great story you told me over the years was not your cameo on New Girl. Did that not include something that <laughs> went terribly wrong, but was a major part of the character? It did. Uh, thanks for remembering. But yeah, I did one episode of New Girl and everybody was so nice. I was playing, a, I was supposed to be a, a hard ass cop who keeps giving them tickets on their date very different from my natural dorky personality i was supposed to be just a real hard ass at one point i tackled dermot moroni and all this stuff and that none of that was in the final episode because <laughs> i was supposed to be climbing off the motorcycle the motorcycle just completely fell over when i was climbing off of it and gasoline like was spraying out and uh, the mirror broke off and my natural reaction that you see in the episode was oh my god <laughs> like and thankfully, instead of ruining the shoot, which I thought I had done for sure, I thought, oh, my God, it's like 1 a.m. in Hollywood. Everyone wants to go home and this idiot is knocking over the motorcycle. They thought it was fun and they decided to keep it in the episode. And then they said, Brian, we're just going to reshoot the other scenes where you're just being your yourself because you were yourself when you reacted to the motorcycle. So we're just going to have you be like Brian as a cop. And I was like, oh, OK. So it completely changed the concept of the character because of my clumsiness. And a sad note, but a bittersweet note, uh, the director of that episode was Lynn Shelton, oh, yeah. who's just a wonderful, wonderfully gifted director and writer. And I'm so grateful that I got to meet her and work with her. And she sadly passed away 
one of the best things about doing that episode was getting to work very briefly with with Lynn Shelton because she was a brilliant and I love her films. I remember telling her, I just saw your sister's sister and I really loved it. And she was touched by that. And I I really meant it. It was just I really love her work, like um the sort of trust that she did with Michael Patrick O'Brien uh, as a co-writer. And that that's a wonderful movie if people want to check it out. That's a lovely experience to have had there. I never heard that story from you. I'm so glad you got to have that experience and I'll be sure to check out some of those movies. I hope some of the people listening at home may be able to do the same. Well, Brian, we spoke briefly about mistakes and sadly I do have to bring up quite a big mistake that has (laughs) put us in the situation we are today. So it's such an awkward conversation to have. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to have lured you onto the call to have all this wonderful conversation to really get to the real reason we're here. But I got a call earlier this week and the call was from your high school. I couldn't quite hear the the name of the high school at the other end of the phone. What was the name of your high school? My high school was St. Viator High School in Arlington Heights, Illinois. St. <laughs> Viator High School. I got a call from them and they had said, Billy, I know you host this podcast and you've spoken to a few people about, you know, getting them fully graduated. I'm sorry to bother you with this, but we have another case that's just landed in our laps. We were just going through all our files, clearing some stuff out. And we just figured out Brian Stack, that guy you've worked with a few times. He was technically one day short of graduating. We're so embarrassed. This is so terrible. But we need him to go through one more day of school and then everything will be perfectly fine. So we don't really have the guts to do it ourselves. Do you mind doing it via the podcast? I feel like he'd be more receptive to that. So Brian, would you be happy to go through one more perfect day of school at, you sorry, you said it was St. Viator in Arlington Heights? Yeah, it's not one of the more famous saints, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if he, if he made any of the top 10 list. Would you be happy to go through one more perfect day of high school with me? Sure, sure. My, my memory is pretty fuzzy of high school, but I will try to revisit it. Let's make the most of it. Let's have some fun with it. So the last first day of Brian Stagg. Brian, let's start with the easy one. You mentioned the name of the school itself. Tell us a little bit about it. Where was it? What was this school like? St. Vider at the time was an all-guys Catholic high school. It's gone co-ed in, in uh, later years. It was in northwest suburbs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Palatine, Illinois. The school was in Arlington Heights, which is right nearby. All Catholic school with some non-priests, non-brother teachers, but uh, a lot of teachers who were you know, in the religious order. All guys, so a lot of testosterone. If you weren't on the football team, sometimes you felt semi-invisible. Like I was on the tennis team, but that didn't count. You definitely weren't a jock if you're playing tennis. But I did enjoy playing on the tennis team. And I was in the jazz band. True jazz purists would be appalled that we called it the jazz band because we played like the Pink Panther theme. And <laughs> <laughs> Let's speed back to the very beginning of what your day would look like. Do you remember what your morning routine looked like? Like what sort of time would you get up? What was for breakfast? And what was the commute to school? It always felt like I was waking up at 4 a.m. because I was always so tired, but it was probably closer to six. And then um, I probably got to school around eight. Um, My first year or two, I took the bus. And after that, I was riding in carpools with other guys from the neighborhood, like Ren's older brother. And then later when I was driving, I would be the driver and it would just be like brothers and uh, other people from the neighborhood. I don't remember eating very many healthy breakfasts. I usually was grabbing things like Pop-Tarts and 
just garbage, you know, <laughs> I did not <laughs> eat well. Both my parents were working. So I think a lot of times I was left to eat whatever I wanted to grab in the morning. Nobody was saying, here are your eggs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> did you want it to be Pop-Tarts or was it you just weren't much of a cook and you were just grabbing what you could see? It was a combination of enjoying garbage and also being lazy, getting up too late, you know, and just running out the door at the last minute. So Pop-Tarts were something you could eat on your way out to get in the car. You know? <laughs> I think a theme I've noticed on the podcast so far is wherever we've talked about food, most people say, back then I ate in ways I'm physically incapable of doing now. Your body after a certain age just is unable to process that much stuff that shouldn't be going into your body. Absolutely. I can't even remember the last time I had a Pop-Tart. I still eat some real bad junk, but yeah, I, <laughs> I could not eat that kind of stuff these days. And you mentioned all boys Catholic school. Does that mean there were uniforms involved or were you just wearing street clothes? There wasn't a, a much of a dress code, except that you had to wear a collared shirt, but you could wear jeans, coarse. Yeah, that was pretty much the only dress code. I found it so interesting to talk to people from America about their schools because for the vast majority of them, people did not have uniforms or they had a beat of a dress code like a collared shirt or maybe they had to wear some form of slacks or chinos or something like that. But the vast majority of schools in the UK, it's basically suits. You know, you're wearing suits with the emblem mm -hmm. on it. And I remember coming over to America for college and... I was teaching basically everybody in my fraternity class how to tie a tie because I'd been doing it since I was six years old. And so it was just second nature. And it was so bizarre to me, but understandable that no one had really ever done that. Because what kind of situation between the age of zero and 18 had you tied a tie for yourself? So before every event, I was doing about 20 different ties, taking them off, putting them on the next guy, tying it up and moving along. But that was kind of the upside of the uniform is that it taught you some lessons that you, you needed to know for the future. Absolutely. That was the one good thing I got over. I, one of my jobs in high school was working at Osco Drugstore as a stock boy. It's sort of like CBS, you know, yeah. and we had to wear a tie under our uh, Osco smock. So that was how I learned to wear a tie because yeah. my little part-time after-school job. Once you've got to school and you said at about 8 a.m., we don't like to talk too much about the bad, but I like to get the bad out of the way first. Sure. So what were the bad classes? What were the classes you dreaded or you were maybe even pulling a sickie if you saw that class on the schedule? You really didn't want to walk into that one. Well, I really dreaded when we were doing swimming in PE in yeah. physical class because I, I I can swim a little bit. Like I could save myself if I fell off a dock, you know, right. within like <laughs> 10 feet of the shore. <laughs> but uh, no, I hate it because it would be like first thing in the morning and I was really tired and I was a scrawny kid and not athletic. So there were times where I would say I forgot my swimsuit. One time the, I remember the gym teacher said, if you forget it again, you get in detention. And I remember thinking in my head, fine, I'd prefer, <laughs> I would prefer sitting in detention to swimming. This is not a punishment. So uh, I remember he gave me detention once, which is the only time I ever got detention in high school. The other um, classes that I never liked math. I never, not because the teachers were bad or anything, they did their best. I've never liked math. I'm not a math person and nothing against it or anything. I'm glad there's people that are good at it. Biology class, I remember being really tough. Father Kelleher was the, the biology teacher. And it was, I remember finding it very challenging, the dissecting frogs and all that stuff. I'm I was much more suited to liberal arts type 
things. Those are always my favorite classes. You mentioned the swimming part, and I have to bring up, because we've been on a crusade on this podcast over the last few episodes, where it has regularly come up that the bad classes were something in the PE swimming area. <laughs> but it's not usually because oh, I did not like physical activity. People were more upset about the positioning in the day where it went. And it sounds like for you, you know, swimming being at the start of the day and then having to sit through four or five more classes in the day, reeking of chlorine and everybody in the room smelling terrible. That's the only thing that baffled me when it came to high school was the amount of heavy activity that would be early in the day before they then put you back in your school clothes and then make you sit in that for hours on end. Yeah, that was that was definitely part of it. I, I'll also, to be perfectly honest, the gym teachers in my school, well, I would say two thirds of them were real assholes, like, <laughs> like real. I don't remember them ever being specifically like mean to me or anything, but I remember them saying incredibly cruel things to kids. They were the guys who, when they were in high school, probably shoved people in lockers, oh, you know, definitely. and that's not true of all PE teachers. I had one PE teacher that was nice and I had my tennis coach was a, they were good guys, but a couple of these guys were just hardcore assholes. There's no other word for it. So we've got the bad out of the way. Swimming classes is going to be nowhere near your schedule. We'd rather put detention on the schedule than have any of those. Math, biology, any of the numbers and sciences are going away. So let's start to step into the good. If we are scheduling the first good class of the day, what was your favorite class to go into? And do you even remember, was there a favorite teacher that maybe came with it? Well, one of them was, uh, I had a world history class, uh, you know, the, where we talk about World War II and then... Uh, European history with Mr. Sullivan. I wish I remembered Mr. Sullivan's first name, but he was just a wonderful guy. All the, the students loved him. He was a great storyteller. And I would say some of the my favorite class I took in college too were history. I've always loved it. It runs in the family. My dad got a master's in history. My sister majored in history. And wow. you know, I think it's just something that goes in our family and my genes. That was a favorite. I also I took some English classes with a guy named Brother Rule, one of the religious order teachers. And he was such a passionate English teacher and loved, loved it so much that it was very contagious to hear him talk about it. The one AP class, advanced placement class I took in, in high school was, was his English class. And it was very challenging, but it was challenging in a really great way. And I remember he had us read things like Camus the Stranger and things that have stayed with me all these years. I don't remember that much from high school, but I remember a lot of things I learned in his class. That's great. Yeah, he was really, really a special teacher. And I, I remember um, taking an art class that I liked. You know, we did some painting and drawing, and I've always loved drawing and drawing cartoons and illustration stuff. It's always been something I did for fun anyway. So that was a really fun class. Did any of those classes inform what you maybe wanted to do with your career at that point? Was there a time where maybe you thought about being a historian and keeping that in the family? I think there was always a part of my mind because my mom was a teacher too. My mom was an elementary school teacher and I always had the highest respect for teachers and I love interacting with students. And when I was in grad school, I was a TA where I would lead discussion classes with students. And I really enjoyed that. I think teaching was always a possibility in the back of my mind. Mm. I had no idea at the time how much all that stuff would, how valuable it would be for me later on until like when I got into improv and sketch writing, I was amazed how often I drew back on things I learned in those classes. Like I wrote a sketch at Conan about Socrates, you know, right. and uh, Socrates would always ask questions using the Socratic method and 
only spoken questions to his students. So I had a bit where he was only asking questions of Conan. Mm -hmm. And I remember actually writing an email to an old college professor I had, Professor Fears, who taught ancient Rome history and uh, ancient Greek history. And I wrote him a message saying, Professor Fears, I never even met you. I was in a big lecture class with you, uh, but I loved your classes. And I just wanted to thank you. It's like 20 years later, you know, and I just said, I've used so many things I learned in your class in ways I never would have imagined in stupid little comedy bits and stuff. And it was really touching to see his response because I could tell that he didn't get a lot of messages from former students like that. He said he was really touched by it and he it really meant a lot to him. And I'm so glad that I wrote that message to him because I thought about his classes a lot and I'm like, I should just tell him that, you know, yeah. <laughs> you find out where he is. And thankfully for the internet, you know, I was able to track him down. I should really do the same thing with some of my classes because one of those that I took when I was in school was classics. I took classic civilization class and we learned so much about the origins of tragedies, the comedies, about Oedipus, about Dionysus, about Homer's Odyssey and I remember being a huge, and still am to this day, a huge Simpsons fan growing up and didn't even realize via taking these classes how much it would help and inform what I was then watching, the, the amount of references that they make to classics and the amount of reference they'll make to, I believe there's literally an episode called Homer's Odyssey of The Simpsons where there are direct references to that sort of thing because so many comedians i think do take great joy in history i think even conan had the little eisenhower mug on his desk all the years and had you know a huge obsession and his history and where he came from to the point that he knew just about everything about eisenhower and i know stephen similarly i know lord of the rings is definitely his big thing but i know stephen is still a history buff and just loves world history and is so fascinated by it and loves to work it into a bit and needle it into a bit if you can to sort of make a niche reference that's going to be this this piece of funny just this group of people are gonna gonna really like but it's going to be a great reward because you've you've studied that subject and so you're going to be part of this little joke which is so wonderful so it's funny too how when you study class like you mentioned with conan and steven so much of the perspective you get from studying history allows you to see that's one of the reasons it makes me so upset when I hear about kids not learning history yeah. or having parts of our history erased. Mm -hmm. It gives you a perspective about what the future should be, obviously, you know, and what you don't want to have happen again. Mm -hmm. And if we don't learn what happened, the old saying, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. You know, yeah. if you don't, you don't learn from the past. So if the past isn't being taught, the mistakes are much more likely to happen again. I worry about that all the time. And that's one reason I think learning history is so important for young people today. And I hope that sections of our history aren't removed from the curriculum. I fully agree. I was very fortunate at my school that history classes, we taught the good, the bad and the ugly of British history, which I think was quite normal in the UK. And no country is without its faults. No country is without a part of their history that was a bit of an ugly time that maybe we want to look past but it doesn't solve anything to look past it english being very similar as well english is so many books and stories that people want deleted and even if there is some 
language or topics that people don't want to talk about now. There are so many of these wonderful books that have still really informed where we are today. Yep. We don't need to throw out all of Dr. Seuss. We don't need right, to do exactly. that. We, we can look at it and say, we've made progress since yeah. that happened. Great classes and wonderful to have those teachers that really sort of supported you in moving forward with that. You didn't mention a teacher in the art world. Was there a teacher in the art world that made you love it as much as you did? I, I wish I could remember the art teacher's name, I took, but I, uh, I remember enjoying doing the art and like mm -hmm. the class itself, I remember more than what the teacher said or did in the class. But I do know I have talked to many people who've gotten great inspiration from their art teachers. So I know how important that is. It was a nice creative outlet in the middle of a high school day. Do you think that creative outlet was maybe a precursor to wanting to get into sketch comedy? That could be. I think I was always longing for some kind of creative outlet, even if I wasn't always consciously aware that that, that was happening. I think if I hadn't done it professionally, I'd probably be still trying to take, you know, a painting class or a uh, an acting class or something like trying to get into my local church play or something, you know, I, I think knowing me, I would probably feel a pull in the direction of doing something in the creative field, even if it wasn't professionally. So we've got a nice layout of the classes for the, for the good of the day. We're going to start the day with the history class with Mr. Sullivan between those two classes. Did you ever have like break recess, anything like that? I think we did. I wish I could remember exactly. I think we would usually have, there'd be some kind of free period at some point. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was during senior year, you were allowed to leave campus like at lunch and stuff. So I would go to like Taco Bell or something or go over to the, if they were showing a movie at the um, local public library. I remember going to see Soylent Green and uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. During the middle of a day, you were able to go and see a movie? I think it was probably more likely that it was right after school, but before tennis practice started or okay. something like that. If you skip class to do it, I'm not judging. There's Everyone's got that story of that one time they skipped to do something. I was probably too repressed and guilt-ridden to uh, <laughs> skip class. I don't think I ever played hooky. <laughs> <laughs> I think I skipped class one time in my life because I was exactly the same. I always felt guilty. Parents are going to find out. Teachers are going to call my bluff so so silly so ridiculous looking back me and a friend of mine had heard that in london there was going to be a dvd signing by stone cold steve austin at, oh. a, at a specific time and it was the only day he was going to be there and we decide we're going to go and meet stone cold steve austin we're like how many times is this going to happen in your life and we both had doctor's appointments that came up that day were so nervous the entire time that we're going up there because we're nervous that a teacher's going to see us going to the train station or parents are going to be able to tell when we're coming back home we're coming home at a weird time we go up there we meet stone cold steve austin i think i've actually got the sign yep i've got the signed dvd on the shelf above me got the picture and everything and you know what no regrets. I have great memories from that time. It was so ridiculous. No regrets at all. That's fantastic. Who's going to think back and, and remember going to class that one time instead of going to meet a hero of yours, a pop culture hero? You know, that's totally, totally worth it. I'm so glad you did that. I've been very fortunate over the years through Colbert and Conan that there were a few times where guests came on where you just get the opportunity to just to say, I just want to say I'm a huge fan. And one of them, of all people, was actually Rowan Atkinson came on the show i just a part of me wants to be able to say kind of thank you so much for all the memories you've given me over the years 
he kind of seems so touched by it to just have someone just want to say that and leave and not ask for, can I get the picture? Can I get this? Can I get that? And so it was so wonderful. Have you ever had those experiences over the years, whether it's at Conan or Colbert, where it was someone you just got the opportunity to just say, you know, what a big fan you were? Yeah, absolutely. And what you just described with Ron Atkinson is very much like my experiences with, there was only a few times where I, I tried to, you know, for the most part, leave people alone. But there were a few times, like I remember Steve Martin was in the hallway at late night and yeah. I just walked he was looking at some pictures on the wall and and I just kind of walked up and I said, excuse me, Mr. Martin, I just want to quickly say thank you. You know, you've been a huge inspiration to me and to everybody else here. And I just wanted to thank you for all your work. It's meant a lot to me. And he was just super gracious about it. It was funny. It was a reminder to me too, that a lot of times people's persona are so different from their real self. He's very kind of soft-spoken and gracious and kind, almost like an art professor, you know, sort of like, there's nothing wacky about him, right, you know? Right. And I think when I was growing up, I thought people's persona was who they were. Definitely. And sometimes it is, you know, some people are exactly like the persona, but most of the time, like I've, I was always amazed over the years to find out how many of my favorite performers are actual true introverts, you yeah. know? Is that, well, growing up as a shy kid, I thought you can't be an introvert and be a performer. That's yeah. impossible. And Steven says, self-confessed introvert, you know, not even a confessed uh, Conan, I would say is the same way. Um, John Lennon said he got stage fright before shows, which blows my mind. Yeah. When I was growing up. That never would have occurred to me. And there's been a few other times, like I remember going up to Michael Palin for Monty Python mm-hmm. when he was on. And I think he was on as like the third guest of the show too. Like most people didn't even know who he was, but to me, he's like one of the Beatles, you know, yeah. Andrea Martin from SCTV. Thankfully, and Paul Westerberg from their placements or Peter Buck from REM, mm-hmm. Neil Young, actually Neil Young, it was funny. I, I wasn't going to go bother him. I was doing a Frankenstein bit and I came out of the makeup room in my full Frankenstein head just as he was coming off from his interview. And so I was literally in the airlock. It was just me, Frank Smiley, our producer and uh, <laughs> and uh, Neil Young. And I just I, he was standing right there. So I just said, I just wanted to say thank you. You know, again, like your music has meant a lot to me. And he goes, oh, Frankenstein bit was funny, man. <laughs> and I was like. And it was just a very surreal moment to just, uh, cause I wasn't going to bother him, but I literally walked practically right into him in my Frankenstein outfit. So thankfully all those people were incredibly gracious about it. Uh, there's so many wonderful stories of people I met over the years. And one of them was actually someone you brought up a little earlier, Dave Keckner, actually, uh, who just bumped into him as he was coming to Colbert one time. He was immediately in my face of just like, hey, Dave, nice to meet you. Like he's introducing himself. You're all buddies now. You're all buddies yep. now. You're all on the same page. We're all here to get a job done. I think a lot of those sketch guys, a lot of those people that come from the same world as you do are like, I'm just one of the guys. I just happen to be on the show today and Dave Keckner doesn't seem like a person who has changed since the very beginning. He's always been the exact same guy. He really is. And he was actually best man in my wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, uh, he is another guy like Steven, like Carell, like Amy Sedaris. Success really hasn't changed them. Oh. There was a documentary called Overnight about this guy who kind of burns all his bridges trying to become the next Tarantino. He sabotages himself with his own ego And one of his friends says, I think fame is a truth drug. I don't think it changes you. I think it amplifies who you are already. Hmm. So if you're a nice, easygoing person, you're probably going to be a nice, easygoing person when you're famous too. Mm -hmm. And I think of people like Stephen Colbert and and Carell, and he said they were really nice, respectful, kind, ensemble type people back in the old days, and they still are. One of the funniest things I saw a sketch guy do 
it was actually over at Colbert, but it was just outside paparazzi and fans and stuff waiting for the big guest to come along. I believe the guest that day, I might be wrong, but I think the lead guest that day was Lady Gaga. Droves of fans down the street trying to get stuff signed. Paparazzi jostling for space. And she was very gracious and was signing stuff, saying hi to people. And the second guest that day was Matt Walsh. And Matt, an old friend of ours too. Yeah, Matt, who has just, you know, come in off the subway as Lady Gaga's getting out of her, you know, entourage of cars. <laughs> Matt's just coming off the subway with, you know, his jacket on and his hat. And everyone's making all this commotion about Lady Gaga. And I just remember Matt getting to the stage door and just saying to no one who is responding, just looking out at everybody <laughs> and says, I'll get you guys on my way out. And it just goes into the <laughs> I, I love that so much. So funny. And I think in some ways that's like the perfect, Matt is an extremely successful actor and he has this wonderful career and yet he can probably go out to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's like the perfect level of fame. Like I remember Tim Meadows saying, I'm as famous as I want to be. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably a nicer way to go through life, like being Vince Gilligan famous, you know, like yeah. uh, you've done great work. People love your work, but you can go on vacation and not get swarmed and mm -hmm. you're not on the tabloids and um, <laughs> the perfect kind of fame to have. So our classes for the day, we we started with history and then we had maybe a little bit of a break, but then we switched into English with Mr. Rule. And then we have the lunch part. I'm going to put lunch before we get to art, but lunch Big question I have to ask everybody, did you bring, did you buy? I remember bringing it occasionally, but most of the time I ate the cafeteria food for the first couple of years. And then later when we could leave campus as like, I don't remember if I could do it as a junior, but as a senior, I remember going out for fast food meals. Like I'd go get a sub sandwich mm -hmm. or uh, go to Taco Bell a lot when I could drive, which definitely beat the cafeteria food. It never really did a number on your body for the rest of the day. I don't think so. Maybe I'm lying to myself. I think at that age, you're just so equipped for just the worst garbage. So if there was a lunch, if you were picking the ideal lunch you could have that back then, would it be driving off to go and get Taco Bell or coming back or would it be something else? I think that was at the time that was like, for me, just the best thing you could get, like a really good Italian sub or getting a few things to Taco Bell. That was always like, I was good. So our day, we've got the lunch, you running off to go and grab some Taco Bell or an Italian sub, driving off to do that. Coming back to campus, art, expressing yourself, your creativity. But we have one last assignment for you for the day. And that assignment is you gather in the auditorium and you are going to give advice to the kids of today. So the kids that are currently at St. Viator, if they potentially dream of being like you, if they potentially dream of being in the comedy sphere, writing, performing, what advice would you give to the kids of today, whether it's things they should do or things they shouldn't do? One thing I would tell them to keep in mind is don't let being scared to try something keep you from doing it if you think you'd really love it. I held off for so long on trying things like improv because I was so scared I wouldn't be good at it. And I just was so afraid to be bad at something I loved. I, I love comedy so much that I was afraid of ruining it by trying it myself and not doing it well. Yeah. I think people come to terms with the risks that they take that don't pay off. It's those what ifs that kill you later where you're like, 
what if I had tried that? Like I dreamed of being a great athlete when I was younger. I played tennis on the tennis team, but I was never going to be a great tennis player. I dreamed of playing at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and all that stuff. But that's okay that I wasn't suited for it. Kurt Vonnegut actually wrote something that I'd love to share with the students. Such good advice. He he wrote, when I was 15, I spent a month working on an archaeological dig. I was talking to one of the archaeologists one day during our lunch break, and he asked those kind of getting to know you questions. You ask young people, do you play sports? What's your favorite subject? And I told him, no, I don't play any sports. I do theater. I'm in choir. I play the violin and piano. I used to take art classes. And he said, wow, that's amazing. And I said, oh, no, but I'm not any good at any of them. And he said something then I'll never forget, which absolutely blew my mind because no one had ever said anything like it to me before. He said, I don't think being good at things is the point of doing them. I think you've got all these wonderful experiences with different skills, and that all teaches you things and makes you an interesting person, no matter how well you do them. And Vonnegut said, and that honestly changed my life because I went from a failure, someone who hadn't been talented enough at anything to excel, to someone who did things because I enjoyed them. I've been raised in such an achievement-oriented environment, so inundated with the myth of talent, that I thought it was only worth doing things if you could win at them. And I thought that was such an inspiring thing to hear because if I had tried improv and just enjoyed it and it didn't lead anywhere, I still would have enjoyed it and gotten something out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. like I did with sports because I was never going to be a great athlete, but I loved playing tennis and I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Even if I was never going to be very good at it, doing things you enjoy really does make you a more interesting person. And a well-rounded person. It doesn't mean you're going to do it as a career necessarily or whatever. Or That's why I love when I hear that someone loves to paint and they're just painting pictures. Who who cares how great they are? You know, yeah. just do it. If you love it, do it. Why not? And maybe you will. Maybe you are going to be a great artist. But at the very least, you're going to enjoy yourself. I would also say to students, and I know it's hard when you're in the middle of high school to understand this, but a lot of the things that you think are so important right now while you're in school aren't really going to matter at all. Maybe even a day after you leave school. (laughs) Did you make the football team? Were you on the prom court? You know, or were you homecoming king? Were you a cheerleader? Nothing against any of that. But the second you leave school, no one's going to care that you did those things or didn't do those things. Like there was a guy in my dorm who had a big scrapbook of all his athletic accomplishments from high school. And my heart kind of went out to him a little bit because he would flip through it and go, Hey, look, I was a three sport athlete. And I was like, oh, this was his entire identity in high school. And he has to hang on to that. It's like that Springsteen song, Glory Days. Mm -hmm. And my heart kind of went out to the guy because he's got to find the next thing now. So that's the bittersweet thing about it. And you're going to find going forward, it's all a matter of finding your passion and finding things that you enjoy doing. I've fortunately been able to give a fair amount of advice to people getting into TV, film, this sort of world. And I'm no savant in any way, shape or form. I just try to sort of tell people in the experience I've had to this point, what works and what doesn't. And some people have come up to me saying stuff like, I just want to work for SNL someday. And Mm -hmm. I'll be asking why? Not that I'm trying to diminish anybody's goals at all, but do you want to work there because you can just say that you work there or do you want to work there is because that's what you love and that's what you want to do? Because the same as, I know such a famous speech now, but when Conan was wrapping up The Tonight Show and he Mm -hmm. said how much he loves what he does and he does not care if he is doing this in a 7-Eleven parking lot, he will do that. 
I mean, he quickly followed it up by saying he does not want to do this at a 7-Eleven parking lot, <laughs> but he will. But he would. He, he would. would. And you know, and I know that Conan is that guy. Conan is just sort of so driven by this, driven by making comedy and making people laugh that it kind of doesn't matter where it is that he just gets that thrill ride. And I think that's the thing that people are looking to harness. When you say don't let being scared of something stop you from doing something, I do stand-up comedy and I've said to multiple people that I'm terrified every single time I go out on stage. And I've done it for many years now and I got great advice from, of all people, it was Laurie Kilmartin, a friend of both of ours. who Love Laurie, yeah. Laurie's, Laurie's one of the funniest comedians I've ever worked around and is just an absolutely astonishing stand-up comedian. She was the person that pushed me to go and do stand-up in the first place. I was asking her for advice, and she said, I'm going to give you one secret piece of advice that this is, this is really going to help you if you're trying to do stand-up. I was like, okay, yeah, great. Give me the secret formula. And she goes, just nut up and do it. I was like, oh, she goes, yeah, because if you don't do it, you're never going to know and you're going to fail. There are going to be bad shows. There are going to be good shows. You just have to start. And that being scared of it, it just shows how much you want to do it. Being scared of it is the drive. It's your mind telling you, I want to be the best at this. And to keep chasing that is is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, I had a friend many years ago, who was auditioning for SNL and she saw Phil Hartman in the hallway mm. and she said, excuse me, Mr. Hartman, you don't know me. I, I, I'm a fan, but I'm auditioning. And I was wondering if I could just ask you, do you have any advice? And he said to her, we're all scared to death and it's part of our job to pretend that we're not. Perfect. And, uh, and I thought, I remember thinking, oh, that's it. Everybody's scared, but you can't let that stop you. You have to just accept that that's part of the thing. And that just means you care. Like mm-hmm. you were just saying, it's because you don't, you want to be good at it. You don't want to fail because you love it. Mm-hmm. And that means that the fear is normal and it's universal. And she said that really helped her. She did end up working there for a year. Uh, and so that was, so I'm happy that it worked out for her. But, um, but I remember, I've never forgotten that. And I thought that was very generous and wise of him to say, one thing I did want to say to you, one thing I never forget in my career that was absolutely massive is I remember back in 2012, as I was finishing my time at Conan, I had to write a paper for my time at the internship. I had to write a paper and submit it. And a couple of you, actually multiple of you were nice enough to take the time to speak with me. It was, a, you did, Matt O'Brien did, Dion Cole did. And it was such a delight, but I just remember speaking with you and the stories that came out with it stuck with me throughout my entire comedy career. You were telling me great stories, many of the stories that you shared here today about Farley and Carell and Neil Flynn and all those great guys that you've performed with. You were just one of those people that was so gracious and so lovely with the interns and everyone starting out in the business from the very beginning. And that's not to say that there were people like, Conan who weren't like that because I have to say even the man himself was exactly that person was always just that gracious and it just comes from the top down and I'm very fortunate to have worked at two places with you where that happened Conan runs it like that where Stephen runs it like that and then I hadn't seen you for about six or seven years between those two jobs and I remember I was sat in reception at Colbert for a job interview 
looked totally different. I had my head shaved. It was, I did not look like the same guy. You recognize me immediately. You said, hello. You said, Hey, how's it going? It calmed me down so much going into the interview because all these years later, you just remembered who this random intern was from six or seven years ago. It just meant the world. And it was such a credit to to your character, it made this whole industry feel a little less daunting. And I know you did it for me and not just for me, plenty of other former interns that have worked with you in the past. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for what you've done for me along the way. You, I don't think you realize how much you've helped. Oh, that means so much to me, Billy. Thank you for saying that. And uh, I Honestly, it, it was a, always a pleasure to talk to you about anything. And um, you, you're a great person to work with. And I remember being an intern myself and having lots of questions. And in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, if if someone's nice and eager and wants to know answers to questions, God, the least I could do is try to answer them as best I can, or at least point them in the right direction, because I certainly would have appreciated that, you know, yeah. and uh, a lot of times as an intern, I felt very invisible. And I so I always try to make an effort to... Uh, Make them feel like, yeah, we see you and we appreciate what you're doing for us. And what you you make the show run. It didn't even feel like effort. It was just, um, mm. it was a real pleasure to always, anytime to talk to you. So I'm, I really mean that. That's very, very kind. Thank you, Matt. And I, I feel the exact same way. I'm going to have a quick speed back through your day, just so everybody knows where we landed. So at St. Viator, all boys Catholic high school in Arlington Heights, you woke up, you think around 6am and at 6am you grabbed some pop tarts and headed out. You got in your carpool on the way there. You maybe played some music with those folks. You had your college shirt on, not a full uniform, but you had your college shirt on. You had swimming nowhere near your schedule. You'd rather have detention. You were not going anywhere near that. Math and biology were nowhere near your schedule either because the first thing you're walking into is history class with Mr. Sullivan or Sully. You got in there, you enjoyed your history class, and then you went into English class with Mr. Rule, reading things like The Stranger. Lunch, you were driving away to go and get an Italian sub or something over at Taco Bell because then you were coming back to do art, and in art you were expressing your creativity. And then, in your final speech of the day, you were telling everybody there, don't let being scared of something stop you from doing that. And a lot of the things in life that you think are important now probably won't be soon after so take it easy and enjoy the discovery brian with that it has been such a pleasure and i just want to congratulate you on finishing your last first day thanks billy it was, i enjoyed going back through that and uh yeah it was it's so strange that i graduated like 40 years ago from high school which <laughs> blows my mind <laughs> I enjoyed it as well. Is there anything before we get out of here? Is there anything you want to tell the people at home to watch or enjoy? Oh, you know, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, I think just if people continue to enjoy watching the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, hope hopefully they'll uh, continue to enjoy that. And there's also an improv show that I have been able unable to do as of now, but I'm hoping to do one of these days with the writers of the show called Sandwich Purse. Um, if anyone wants to look out for that, my fellow writers, I may not be there, but I'll be there in spirit. I think it's at the caveat theater. So look for that. If, if you want to check out a fun show. Fantastic. Well, everybody at home, keep watching the late show with Stephen Colbert. Keep an eye out for sandwich purse improv here in New York. And Brian, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. It was truly a delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Billy. It was a pleasure to be on here with you and great to see you again. We miss you. 
And so ends another Last First Day at Last First Day Academy. Thank you so, so much to Brian Stack for joining us for his Last First Day for the first last time. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to go back and rate it, like, subscribe, share with your friends, and write in the comments the stories about your most ridiculous lunches to date. I want to hear them all, because I've got many more stories for you next week when we have another fantastic guest coming on from the industry who is currently tying up their shoelaces, ready to walk the hallways, and share their stories with you. But until then, class dismissed. Class dismissed.